From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, where your humble podcast host has about 24 hours to finish his taxes, this is NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Hudzik. Coming up, we go to Vermont, where a clinic is helping refugees deal with the stress of their transition and the trauma in their past. When you're going through the trauma, you don't really have the time to experience the emotions. I always feel like it's the emotions that you deserve to have felt during that time. Then, folks in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, are trying to save a church once attended by one of the town's most famous former residents, civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois. The uh, feelings of the town have changed since uh, the 50s and 60s where you couldn't speak his name without people getting riled up about it. And a few years ago, a film crew descended on Amherst, Massachusetts for an Emily Dickinson biopic. Now the movie is out. I was a little worried going in that it would really camp up the myth, but it it didn't. This movie is in fact a myth buster, says our Dickinson superfan. All that just ahead on NEPR News Now. Many refugees finally feel safe once they arrive in the U.S., sometimes after decades of threats or torture or loss of family members. But just because they're removed from harm doesn't mean the pain is over. One clinic in Vermont has been working to help treat the mental health issues that many refugees face, both from past traumas and the stress of transitioning into a new culture. As part of our occasional series on immigration in New England, Facing Change, Vermont Public Radio's Kathleen Masterson reports. Ajuda Tapa was forced to flee from her home in Bhutan in the early 1990s. The Bhutanese government drove more than 100,000 people like Tapa out of the country in a push toward ethnic cleansing. Along with others, she ended up in a refugee camp in Nepal, where she lived for 18 years. The camp uh, life is so miserable. You know, it's very difficult to you know have basic needs also. Uh, not enough to eat, not enough clothes, you know, and then the the you know the food given by the UNHCR or other agencies is not enough to feed the kids. Tapa is speaking through an interpreter. She's on an outing with about 15 other Bhutanese refugees who've settled in Vermont. All of them have been through trauma therapy counseling. So they formed a social group. And their stop today, Lake Champlain Chocolates. This is our one and only factory, so all of the chocolate we make is right here where you can see through the window. <laughs> Tapa says when she moved to Vermont, she was very depressed, and she didn't feel any hope for the future. She had to leave behind her son at the refugee camp for the first year, and she'd recently lost her husband. He was killed one day while he was out fetching wood in the forest. At first, my, my you know, brain is running here and there, you know, thinking a lot of things, and not thinking about the futures, and I don't have any hopes at that time. My goal is how can I, you know, relieve from all those and then go move forward. When we do our treatment, we're very sensitive to giving our clients control over their story. We realize that they have not asked for their story, that it's been given to them. That's Karen Fondacaro, the director of the Connecting Cultures Clinic, where Tapa sought treatment. She's a professor of psychological science at the University of Vermont and also a co-founder of NEST, New England Survivors of Torture and Trauma. The clinic offers legal, therapeutic, and social work services. She says a technique called narrative exposure therapy helps clients to reprocess their trauma in a safe environment. 
where when you're going through the trauma, you don't really have the time to experience the emotions. I always feel like it's the emotions that you deserve to have felt during that time. The way in which we do it is to really let them tell us when they're ready and let them tell the story. Fonda Caro says most do choose to share. And she's been surprised by how many have found relief after releasing their stories, either in a private session or a group setting. She says research supports this method. But she says for many, the trauma isn't over when they come to the United States. We don't even call it post anymore because it it really can be ongoing. I've worked with individuals where we'll be talking about what happened during the war and they'll get a phone call that night that someone has been harmed in their home country. So it's not post. Part of the therapy involves teaching breathing techniques to help people deal with anxiety and to reduce flashbacks and nightmares. And being in a new country, there are added stresses. Pablo Bos is a geography researcher with the University of Vermont who studies refugee resettlement. You're making adjustments often to a new language, new sets of expectations, dealing with like very, very different relationships with your kids in schools and and the new friends they're developing, new attitudes they have. So all of these kinds of things make the actual adjustment period very, very stressful in many cases. Back at the clinic, Fonda Caro says they've seen individuals from over 29 countries and now have a waiting list for those seeking therapy. She says the clinic was preparing for the arrival of Syrian refugees in Vermont, but that resettlement was stalled by federal orders. And Fonda Caro says she's learned a good deal working with refugee clients, too. For one, in the past, she'd heard other therapists talk about sometimes dancing with clients, and the academic in her cringed. But now she sees the importance of finding joy. And if you can see joy on faces of individuals who've come in and lost babies and they're dancing with you, that is what we now call behavioral activation of one of our best techniques for depression. (laughs) And that's what these social groups of therapy graduates are all about, finding joy in daily life. Ajuda Tapa says the support group has helped her break through the isolation and depression she felt when she first arrived. Yeah, it helps a lot, you know, in the group, and I'm comfortable sharing and then socializing with the group. Now her life is a mix of Bhutanese traditions and foods from home and learning English and Vermont culture. At the group outing to Lake Champlain Chocolates, she tried chocolate for the first time. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kathleen Masterson. A church in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, that civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois attended as a young man may have a new lease on life. The Clinton AME Zion Church is on the National Register of Historic Places, but has been closed for a few years and has fallen into disrepair. But community members are buying the 130-year-old structure with hopes of renovating it. New England Public Radio's Berkshire County reporter Adam Frenier had a chance to visit. Tucked away just off Great Barrington's Main Street, the Clinton Church looks tired. The faded white paint on the building's exterior is chipped and peeling. The wooden cross above the front door is a weather-beaten gray, and a big blue tarp covers a large section of the roof. Inside, the main part of the church looks much like it did when it closed in 2014. A simple room with about 20 pews, wood paneling, and even a piano still there. I had my, my kids baptized here. Uh, I've been a member since about 1942-44. At the altar, I meet Ray Gunn, who is helping the effort to save Clinton. We always brought in visiting ministers, and they would bring their, their gospel singing choirs, and we they'd be up here singing, and we'd just have a jolly good time. 
But today, there's a heavy smell of mold in this old church. It forces us to take our conversation to the front porch, where Ed Abrams meets us. He's a great Barrington selectman and has also been instrumental in organizing the project. A few people had come and and asked if we could do something to save it, and what I found out was a lot of people had a number of people had approached the church, had looked into what it would cost, and gotten scared because it was such a big project. Not everyone was scared off. After a meeting attended by about 25 people, fundraising began, and in about four months, the group raised $100,000 through more than 400 donations, enough to buy the church and make some immediate repairs. Abrams says the next step is to raise money for renovation work. It will not be cheap. The first time we brought an architect through, he said, you're, you're basically going to rebuild this while it stands. You're going to tear out everything inside to the studs, then you're going to find out the studs are rotten and have to replace those. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. W.E.B. Du Bois' involvement with this particular congregation dates back to before Clinton Church was built. As a teenager, he was elected temporary secretary to one of its more active groups, the Sewing Society. But it's hard to say how often Du Bois visited this building, which didn't open until he was about 19. Still, it's his legacy that's likely central to this restoration effort. Born in Great Barrington, Du Bois became a noted African-American civil rights activist and co-founder of the NAA. ACP. Ray Gunn says he remembers hearing from his own father about meeting Du Bois. He, he was a nice guy, but, you know, he had his own principles and things and, 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 and very uh, strong-minded. Gunn says Du Bois wasn't always the revered figure in town that he is today due to Du Bois' adoption of communism late in life. We have had a difficult time with the uh, Du Bois legacy. The uh, feelings of the town have changed since uh, the 50s and 60s where you couldn't speak his name without people getting riled up about it. While there are no concrete plans for what to do with the Clinton Church once it's fully restored, Gunn says he hopes it will serve as a home for Du Bois-themed educational programming. And it appears the little church, built 130 years ago, may be awoken from its current slumber. For New England Public Radio, I'm Adam Frenier. The film A Quiet Passion opened last week. It's about the life of poet Emily Dickinson, who lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, where parts of the movie were filmed. It's directed by Terrence Davies and stars Cynthia Nixon, best known for her role on Sex and the City. Chris Kobolinski is an adjunct professor at Holyoke Community College and a poet. He regularly reads both Dickinson's poetry and his own at monthly open mics at the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst. He got to see the film in previews last year and tells New England Public Radio's Henry App that it does a good job of telling Dickinson's story. It's a bit of a myth buster, the film. It really humanizes her, I think, beyond just that legend of the reclusive, childish, grown woman who never left her bedroom uh, and seemed to only want to converse with the muse. I mean, you know, it shows how she communicated with some friends, uh, family. It showed how she loved to bake bread, (laughs) for instance. There's a lot of uh, funny scenes around that. So, uh, yeah, I found that uh, pretty touching and uh, satisfactory, certainly. I was was a little worried going in that it would really camp up the myth, but it it didn't. So I I thought that was nice. And and that's something that the Emily Dickinson Museum, which is at her former home in uh, Amherst uh, really tries to portray right in in mm. their telling of her story that there was a lot more to her than just uh, this sort of reclusive uh, 
person. Oh yeah, no, no, she was a you know living, breathing you know human being. And another thing the film does really well is it shows that she was a dedicated craftsman, uh, an artist. Somebody who took her craft very seriously. Well, you have a fairly deep connection to Emily Dickinson, right? Mm-hmm. You, you teach her uh, in your intro to lit class mm-hmm. at Holyoke Community College. Uh, you read her poetry at this monthly open mic at the Emily Dickinson Museum. Your mm-hmm. master's thesis was on Dickinson. And when you teach uh, Dickinson to your mm-hmm. students, um, how do you make it relevant to their lives? Well, I, I guess the way I have students connect with it is I, I have them think about language and the power and limitations of language. To state the obvious, you know, we as human beings use language to express ourselves and to understand the world around us. Mm-hmm. But it has its limitations. I mean, how many times have we had conversations where we end saying, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Right? Because we, ne- you know, we can never... Yeah, we can't get there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we can never fully convey what we want to say. And when you have a great poet like Emily Dickinson, especially Emily Dickinson, who can articulate these psychic extremities that language can never really seem to touch upon. Um, it really it stops some people in their tracks, and I think students really are drawn to that. You know, I teach one poem of hers. The first two lines are, um, After a great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. And, you know, and mm-hmm. students stop and think, like, you know, after a great pain, a formal feeling comes? You know, like, what is it? You know, what is that? And, and you know, uh, so we talk about, you know, what that means, not just the language itself, but we talk about how, you know, in your own lives, have you ever experienced, you know, such trauma? And then after a long period of time to sort of become emotionally numb or, or dare I say, even calloused to the great pain that you have felt before, you know, the way that Dickinson can express that with just two simple lines like that. You know, students tend to find that very interesting. I want to come back to the film. Terrence Davies is revisiting uh, Dickinson uh, through a feature-length biopic in, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Why, what do you think – why revisit this story in that form, in that way right now? I mean, uh, I'm sure Terrence Davies himself could answer this sure. better. But, you know, in my opinion, you know, uh, she kind of stands in contrast to the sort of hyper-consumption or hyper-commercialism that we have today mm-hmm. in that we have a poet who – didn't care about getting published, didn't care what the masses thought of her work. She was, you know, an artist dedicated to being independent and to cultivating her own voice. And I think there's something inspirational about that, that we have somebody who, who, an artist or an individual doesn't care about the the mass media, as it were, um, doesn't care what's the popular taste, just being yourself. That's, I think, rewarding to see. Uh, But it's also a little scary to think about that here's somebody who dares to be an individual. You know, and how many times can we say in our own lives that we could dare to be our true selves or to try to discover our true selves? So uh, I think artists can relate to it, but I also think anybody can really relate to that because we all struggle with that. We all struggle between love and labor, what our passions are, but also what's expected out of us from society at large. Chris Koblinski teaches at Holyoke Community College. A Quiet Passion opened in theaters on Friday. 
Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. This show is produced by listener-funded New England Public Radio. Please give us a rating on iTunes, and while you're there, take a look at the other podcasts from NEPR. You can support these podcasts and all the news and music NEPR delivers to your car, your home, and your phone by going to our newly redesigned NEPR.net. While you're there, just click the bright orange Donate button at the top of the page. Again, thanks for listening. I really do have to go do my taxes now. Until next time.